there's a person we'll call the fisherman, and that's fisherman with a PH. He lives very comfortably. He buys new cars. He recently built a new house. In fact, he has even more than one house now. He has a family and kids and treats his wife to jewelry and luxury items. His money, like many people's money these days, essentially comes from the internet. But there's a lot more to it than that. Pretty much every single fraud and scam type that you can think of is enabled by this one guy with thousands of criminals across the world. I would really love to see this guy taken down. The fisherman's business is stealing people's usernames and passwords. That's known as credential theft. It's a critical part of the cybercrime-as-a-service economy. Cybercrime-as-a-service is the term for products and services for sale that help other people commit crime on the internet. Logging credentials are a feature of many cyber underground markets. It's developed into its very own micro-industry. Many of the frauds, scams, and data breaches these days start with the takeover of someone's personal or corporate email account or some other type of account. Everything from stealing money from online bank accounts to business email compromise frauds to even file encrypting ransomware often starts with stolen logging credentials. There are lots of people who sell these credentials, but this person, the fisherman, is exceptional. I know his real name and date of birth and, you know, the addresses of his houses because he's got a few now kind of frustrates me. It's like, well, why why can't we you know, go and arrest this guy? The fisherman's operations are like an open book. And because of that, it's possible to get unprecedented insight into a fishing operation that continues to grow in scale. And there are signs that the fisherman's activities may expand and take an even darker turn. This is Cybercrime Exposed from Intel 471. Who will be the next data breach victim? Who will next be struck by ransomware? As with weather, it's often possible to predict the next storm. It's the same in the cybercriminal underground. Intel 471 studies this world to provide actionable intelligence about who threat actors are targeting and the tools they're using. From software vulnerabilities to malware to stolen credentials, advance warning is critical. We are your window into the cyber underground. Hang on to the end of this episode to hear me have a chat with Intel 471's Chief Intelligence Officer, Michael DeBolt, about this episode, as well as trends around phishing, credential theft, and underground marketplaces. Bex Nychert is an expert in digital forensics and incident response. If an organization gets hacked, she gets called in to figure out how they did it, the same way that detectives would be called in to a physical crime scene. I kind of like to call myself a bit of a mix of a digital firefighter and investigator. I come in to hopefully save the day when companies um, are going through some of the, the worst moments of their lives, really. And as an investigator, she figures out how the intruders got in. But she also occasionally tries to figure out the who, which can be an even more challenging question. At a recent computer security conference, one of Bex's colleagues described her as a kind of cybercriminal stalker, which elicited some chuckles. She puts it differently, however. I think that 
stalking is a bit of a creepy word and I think if it wasn't a criminal, people would think that I'm a bit strange and I am. I probably am a bit strange just due to the, the length of time that I look into criminals and the depth that I go to as well. So if you're scrolling through social media accounts, checking in on, on what they're doing, what they're eating for, for dinner, the medication that they're they're taking. And you know, so you're looking into their personal lives as well as the the crimes that they are committing. Her path to where she is now started as a kid. She was really into IT. She became drawn into computer security and hacking as a teenager while chatting on MIRC. IRC is short for Internet Relay Chat, and it was one of the most foundational and popular messaging services. When I was 13, very vulnerable moment in my life, chatting on um, Merck, MIRC, uh, there were some hackers over in Sydney that kind of were, you know, on the outskirts of my social circle. And they started talking about, you know, this program called Sub7 and how you can use it to kind of pull pranks on on people. And Sub7 was a type of malware that you could remotely control many aspects of someone's computer. Bex says you could use it for pranks, such as causing someone's CD to eject from the player. I went and downloaded that, which was probably a really dumb thing to do at the time. Never used it against anybody, but at the time, I didn't know that you know, that kind of thing would have been a crime, and I think many kids that age wouldn't either. It was quite fully featured malware that could also log keystrokes, including credit card numbers. Beck says that the chat in IRC took a turn. They started talking about stealing credit card data and, and using credit card data to to buy things online. And I went, whoa, I actually know that this is bad because my mom complains about this. <laughs> so I quickly distanced myself um, from those people. She wisely avoided that darker path and instead became a computer forensics expert. And there's one incident in her career so far that she worked on that particularly stands out. It started in 2020 when an Australian government organization had an incident and Bex got called in. The organization had fell victim to a phishing attack and email accounts were compromised. Government organization got phished through their cyber insurance. Uh, we were engaged via their breach council, so the legal team essentially, uh, to investigate and make sure that they had managed to identify all of the compromised accounts and that they had uh, you know, completely eradicated the, the threat actor and you know, then after that, giving them security recommendations to try and prevent it from happening again. If there's one type of cybercrime that anyone who has used the internet has encountered, it's phishing. Everyone has received unsolicited dodgy links in odd emails or ones containing suspicious PDFs or Word documents. And somewhat ironically, if there's one type of cybercrime that's still an Achilles heel for organizations trying to repel hackers, it's phishing. One of the reasons why cybercrime is so prevalent is that you just need an email address to start some kinds of attacks. Email, for all of its workaday utility and humbleness, is actually one of the most dangerous applications. 
Now, phishing comes in a bunch of different forms, but one variation of phishing is creating websites that impersonate legitimate services. For example, an attacker may create a Microsoft 0365 login page that is fake. Then the attackers will send out a link to that page in an email. If someone tries to log in, their credentials are collected. For this government organization, their problem started with just one employee. The person received a phishing email to their personal account. From there, Beck says the attack grew in scale. There are multiple accounts that were breached in, I guess, what we would uh, categorize as a chained phishing attack. Uh, the, I guess, the initial account that was breached, it actually occurred via an employee's personal email account. So they received a phishing email to their personal account and then they happen to enter in their corporate logging credentials, which is something that we see quite often uh, because the phishing pages, you know, it's sending you to a lure to access a file. Okay, well, my personal credentials don't work, so how about I use my um, business credentials instead? So they managed to gain access to this government entity via phishing through this personal email address then use that uh, business email address to uh, send more phishing emails uh, internally within the organisation and kept compromising more and more accounts. And we see this so often and it's you know, a very, uh, I guess, successful tactic because there is that increased element of trust. It usually bypasses security filters when you're having these emails come, I guess, from a trusted colleague. Unfortunately, the organization did not have multi-factor authentication or MFA enabled. MFA may require a person to enter a time-sensitive one-time passcode in addition to their login credentials. It's a security measure to protect accounts. And of course, it's possible for attackers to trick people into giving up that code. But still, implementing MFA is regarded as much better as not having any MFA at all. Beck says this investigation stood out because the client had an unusual request. What, what was really interesting about this investigation, and something that doesn't come up a lot, is that the legal team said, well, okay, can you maybe give us a bit of an idea as to the motivations behind this attack. Can you tell who's behind the attack? Um, you, you don't usually get those questions. The cause of an intrusion is always important and of interest, but the focus then is often on what the intruders did. Was data exfiltrated? Did the organization fall victim to fraudulent transfers? Did the intruders read email? This particular organization wanted to know the who. Bex openly says investigating phishing isn't sexy, but it leads to a lot of high-impact crime, so she was eager to dig in. For quite a long time, I've been tracking different clusters of phishing activity, and to do that, you're really looking at patterns in the way that um, a particular actor operates, so how the phishing URLs are uh, constructed, uh, you know, the infrastructure that they're using, uh, things like that. It's kind of hard to explain, but, you know, once you start seeing a pattern, you can then 
use that to identify additional activity. So I already had a sense of what cluster of activity uh, this belonged to, which you know was a bit of a head start from my case. Um, started digging into it and very quickly came across uh, the name, address, phone number of a person that had registered a number of the domains that were involved uh, in processing the phishing credentials. What unfolded was a pattern of malicious phishing activity that went back to at least 2011. Beck says the fisherman's operations started as kind of a side hustle. He'd give away phishing pages that he'd created in order to get more attention and kudos on cybercrime forums. His operation grew, and around five years ago, he started offering what Bex describes as a managed phishing service. There are several variations of this managed service. One is a kind of grab bag. For $2,000 a month, subscribers regularly receive batches of credential logs. At that price point, customers don't get to pick the organization that is targeted. It's just kind of random based on the spamming and phishing campaigns that the fisherman and his team run. There's another option too. Customers can supply their own leads or email addresses that can be spammed and phished, but you have to pay extra for that. Customers can also just buy the phishing page itself and do the spam campaigns on their own to save money. Bex explains. If the customer has purchased a phishing page and they're doing the phishing themselves, uh, a person will arrive on uh, what we call the landing page and that that will be themed depending on what the customer has purchased. So that could be uh, your generic Office 365 uh, login page. It could be a Dropbox page. It could be a, a Australian MyGov page or a dating site, a bank site. There's there's so many. Um, if they're just purchasing that aspect, uh, a user will enter their credentials. Sometimes it's multi-step. So they'll enter their credentials at that point nothing happens. It takes them to another page where they have to enter their credentials again. And it's at that point in time that the credentials are then uh, you know, processed by what we call a credential processor. And for the most part, will be emailed to that particular customer and sometimes also uh, fed into the, the web portal. Uh, where they've purchased the the phishing page. There's multi-layers of services going from, you know, your budget kind of criminals, those that don't necessarily have the money to spend just yet, uh, where they do their own, uh, I guess they send their own phishing emails, but he provides the phishing page to capture the credentials uh, to him actually doing absolutely everything for you. Bex says that the phishing pages are good because they're clones of the real pages. That makes it difficult for people who don't look closely at the URL to see if the page is actually hosted on the proper domain. Phishing URLs aren't live for very long these days before they're shut down or blocked. But the fisherman is countering this with automation. We know that phishing pages will be taken down eventually. 
And so uh, when when that happens, you know, criminal that spent this money is going to kind of complain and whinge and moan and uh, he's implemented a method that enables the customer to actually regenerate the links uh, so that they can continue on with their, their phishing activity. Uh, they essentially log into a portal, click a button, wait a few minutes, and then they've got all the phishing pages again. So there's a lot of automation behind the scenes, which means that you know, it takes away the, the manual labor. And when he's serving hundreds, if not thousands of customers, that's really, really important for scale. As Bex was unwinding the fisherman's activity in mid-2020, others started to notice his operation as well. Computer security vendors noticed that the phishing lures and landing pages were increasingly being hosted on Google's cloud storage or Microsoft's Azure storage. He has abused probably every single cloud provider that's out there. It was a smart move because at least at that time, links from known cloud storage providers were less apt to be immediately blocked. As a result, phishing URLs and pages remained in play longer, but that did cause more notice to be drawn to his operations. No less than five different software and computer security vendors have written blog posts about campaigns linked to his operations. Yet, he's still in business. You may remember from earlier in this episode that Bex found his real name, date of birth, and addresses of his houses. She also found his wife's profile because his Facebook profile listed her as his wife. His life and his family's life are all over social media. His wife has posted hundreds of photos, many including their children. Although the fisherman generally has a good reputation in his sort of criminal community, he has embroiled himself in conflicts with his customers. One customer in anger posted screenshots that included Bitcoin addresses for payments. His developers also use GitHub to post code for projects related to the operation. It's just all astoundingly open. And during her research, Bex has found even more. He's terrible at OPSEC, um, operational security. I, I really don't know why some of the information is available online, but he's uploaded invoices that he sent to his customers, which you know will contain aliases uh, in some circumstances, the the country where they live, uh, the Bitcoin transaction uh, IDs, uh, you know, the amount that they've paid for that particular product or service. His customer base is in the thousands and perhaps as high as ten thousand. Apart from Antarctica, I don't think there's a, a continent that uh, you know he doesn't have customers based. Uh, so you know, this this is a, a global issue and does have a, a global impact. Uh, cyber criminals aren't always just involved in cyber crime too, and that's something that's often forgotten about. So some of the customers, uh, you know, seem like they're into pretty heavy drug dealing as well, things like heroin. So, you know, and, and that just adds to the resources that they have to commit all of these other crime types. 
Because of the OPSEC mistakes, the invoices, and also code left in the phishing pages, Bex has been able to extract information about those customers. I've aggregated all of these things over time, you know, things from screenshots, uh, uh, Bitcoin addresses where you know, there's a bit of a flame war happening on a cybercrime forum uh, where criminals tend to disclose a bit more information when they're pissed off at each other. And uh, so I've, you know, collected these addresses, collected the invoice details, customer details, you know, what they purchased, how much money they paid for it, and uh, consolidated it into my own general ledger, uh, you know, for those accounting gurus and uh, have looked at how much money he's been making and the trends in what he's been selling. And it's provided a a good insight into um, what what is popular, uh, but also, I guess, some changes over time as well. And having some invoices from his earlier days and then comparing to, I guess, uh, you know, subsequent years, you don't you don't get a full picture, but you can kind of see. Wow, there's been a real you know huge ramp up since he introduced this managed service, and so he's expanding his business, employing people. It's you know just phenomenal. So these so these invoices were just on an open file sharing site, right? Like no authentication needed. Just yeah. No authentication, just out there. And and I honestly don't know why. Beck says that all of this data is valuable, not just for tracking down the fishermen, but also his customers. There are customers of his that are also customers of other similar services as well. So you, you can start to connect the dots between different cybercrime actors and you know where they're purchasing certain things from. And so, you know, from an investigation and intelligence perspective, that's an absolute gold mine too. Why people participate in crime is a question that criminologists try to answer. How do people eventually get embroiled in full-scale cybercrime? It usually starts off small. Bex's first brush with the Trojan horse program and even the mention of credit card theft was enough for her to stay away. But cybercrime does tend to attract a youthful crowd. Through her research, Bex identified one of the fisherman's customers who's just 15 years old. Yeah, that, that's kind of terrifying to me but and I also reflect back on my childhood and how I could have easily kind of fallen into that trap of you know engaging in cybercrime myself if I wasn't you know had had that I guess moral kind of awareness that you know, stealing credit card information is a bad thing because my my mum, you know, talks about how bad it is all the time. So I don't want to go there. Um, so it's really enabling the next generation of of cyber criminals to to get their foot in and and start, you know, I guess, working their way up the ladder. He has repeat customers, customers that you know, month after month will spend 
thousands of dollars with him, including this 15-year-old kid who's probably about 17 now. The fisherman's public posting reveals some clues about the moral calculations going on in his mind. He wrote that several years ago, he didn't have a place to stay and was out of money. A friend from Africa helped him and introduced him to IT. Eventually, the fisherman began helping his African friend with spam. The fisherman leaves a lot out of what happened in the interim between then and now, but he does say that he's now made well over a million dollars in just one year. Bex also noticed that he posed an interesting question on a forum one time. He asked people whether what he was doing was morally fine if his victims were of a different religion. The responses were negative. No, it's not okay. It's illegal. But it doesn't appear those responses were persuasive enough. These days, his operation is growing in scale. The managed fishing service has been extremely successful. Bex found a sign that the fishermen may be looking for new ways to generate revenue. Ransomware. In a ransomware attack, cybercriminals infiltrate computer networks, often using stolen access credentials, and encrypt sensitive data. Then, they're held to ransom. If organizations don't have good backups, they may be tempted to pay the ransom in order to get the decryption key. Uh, So this guy likes to experiment with malware a bit. He doesn't seem to really do it at the same scale as the, the phishing activities. I wouldn't say that he's particularly technically competent in, in that regard. Uh, so he relies on, on a lot of things that you can buy on cybercrime forums. And so, uh, you know, probably within the last six months, it appears that he started exploring ransomware and has purchased a kit off you know the cybercrime forum and uh, modified it to uh, include some some branding uh, of his organization and contact details uh, for him as well of course you know could be that somebody else has has set this up just to you know try and a bit of a false flag kind of operation but based on the way that he operates as well I think there's a fairly good chance that it was actually him. Moving into ransomware would be a sign of the fisherman transitioning even deeper into cybercrime. It seems to be a natural progression. Capturing login credentials means potential access to many organizations. With the right personnel to take that initial access further, a process that's often referred to as lateral movement, it could mean the result is a crippling ransomware attack. Many of you are probably asking at this point, why hasn't this person been arrested? Well, there's no clear answer. With plentiful self-incriminating evidence, he's an easy catch. It is. It is really frustrating because you know, he's within reach. He's within a country that we have extradition um, arrangements with. So it's not like he's he shouldn't be untouchable. And so many of his customers are in well, you know, we would consider, um, you know, friendly kind of jurisdictions as well. So, you know, there's no reason why 
um, we should, you know, have this barrier to taking him down and, and getting that information. It would just be an absolute goldmine if we did and we could, you know, make a really positive difference. Thanks for listening to this episode of Cybercrime Exposed by Intel 471. If you enjoyed this episode, leave a comment or a review and be sure to subscribe. Next up is a discussion about this episode, as well as phishing, credential theft, and underground marketplaces with Michael DeBolt, Chief Intelligence Officer of Intel 471. Thanks for sticking around for this inaugural episode of Cybercrime Exposed. I'm Jeremy Kirk with Intel 471. With me is Michael DeBolt, Chief Intelligence Officer with Intel 471. We're going to discuss some of the aspects of this episode and the implications for enterprise security. Thanks a lot for joining me, Michael. You bet. Thanks. So I met Bex Nitert at a conference, and as, as part of that, she told me this incredible story about this person that she'd been tracking, which is referred to as the fisherman in the episode. And he's basically running this really expansive managed phishing service. So what do you think, like, after listening to the episode, what do you think, what's the type of threat actor that this service appeals to? Yeah, so by and large, this service is going to be attractive, really attractive to low-level lesser sophisticated actors on the spectrum who are looking for uh, really an easy barrier of entry to get their feet wet in the cybercrime world. Um, you know, that being said, just like we've seen with other commoditized off-the-shelf services uh, like bulletproof hosting or call centers, crypting services, things like that, we've also observed experienced actors use these as a way to sort of outsource a very specific aspect of their work you know if and it makes sense right the thought being why spend the time energy money standing up my own infrastructure to facilitate my attacks if i can simply outsource that or pay somebody else to do it and so how do iabs or initial access brokers fit into the cybercrime as a service economy when we talk about cybercrime as a service economy we found it really necessary to sort of view this underground economy through a business lens. You know, you have competing sellers, they're offering products and services and goods, and you have consumers who are coming into the market to, uh, to purchase them. You know, with this perspective, we then kind of take a look across the entire space, the entire underground, and we sort of classify and we tier these various offerings. And the idea there is that there's a lot going on, right? We want to have a very, very clear picture of you know, the types of offerings out there, who is who is operating these phishing as a service um, offerings, who, who is behind all of these bulletproof hosting providers that are um, enabling a lot of this criminality to happen? In what ways are they enabling cybercrime to happen? And ultimately, you know, let's stack and rank who is the most prolific um, actors out there that we need to be focusing on and tracking. And so when it comes to uh, in this instance, phishing as a service, you know, we would consider this a core enabler of cybercrime because it remains a very popular method, phishing, um, for stealing uh, credentials, which, 
you know, often opens the door for further criminal acts like financial theft or network breaches. We always talk about like when we make this assessment of whether something is core enabling or not, what would happen if you were to remove that service from the underground? How much downstream impact would it have? How much cost are you imposing on the actor by uh, or the cybercrime ecosystem in general by removing this service? And so that's kind of how we see it. We stack and rank it. We try to provide coverage over this area. Uh, the, this massive space and try to make sense of it. And I saw some statistics recently about specifically ransomware and just kind of stepping back like a little bit further. And I, I, this was a survey of uh, organizations that had been infected by ransomware. And I think 30% said their incident was connected to uh, credential theft. So what are some of the trends that you've seen around IABs? I know that, uh, you know, looking in our systems, there's just an absolutely prolific amount of access brokering going on right now we track this a lot phishing is a big is a big deal but there's another type of credential theft that comes in the form of malicious spam or, or so this is sometimes called mal spam which are those uh really great emails that you get with shady looking attachments disguised as invoices or something like that but they're they're, they're in fact laced with malware um, so victims will get that email they will think it's something legitimate um, actors are very good at crafting legitimate looking emails that have malicious um, downloads. The victim will download that attachment and then that attachment will be a, a, a malicious payload and that will often silently load another piece of malware in the background, which is called an information stealer. And that's what, uh, once it's installed on the machine, it harvests all the username and password credentials from the victim. Um, and then those harvested credentials are copied to what we call malware logs. And those malware logs are basically like a flat file with rows and rows of usernames, passwords, um, URLs, other metadata from the machine. And those malware logs are then um, captured by the threat actor. They're shared or they're sold in the underground in a number of different ways, primarily through uh, private one-to-one -one sales, like engagements between one actor and another actor. Uh, or they're uploaded to, into like a marketplace um, where buyers can log in, they can register an account, they can log in, they can search for the credentials that they're that they're looking for, um, and they can purchase them one by one or, or in bulk. So over the past two years or so, this type of credential theft from mouse spam has really given rise to this sub-economy of initial access brokers that you're talking about. And they really make it their business, these IABs, to go into these marketplaces or engaging with threat actors one-on-one -on -one to find those really juicy credentials, specifically ones that allow access to uh, corporate networks like VPN or RDP. And then they'll, they'll, they'll take that and they'll resell it to the highest bidder, or they'll work directly with uh, a known ransomware group or an affiliate to pass that on for further uh, ransomware. And so there's a gap of time between the, when those credentials go on the market and when they're actually used by another actor. And so in that gap of time, is there a way to detect if that's happened? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, a big part of this is going back to what I was saying earlier about knowing who, you know, who's who in the underground, because, you know, not all IABs or threat actors in general are equally effective or equally credible. Um, this might be a shock, but criminals lie, um, they exaggerate, they get things wrong. Um, 
so it can really quickly kind of, if you don't know who, you know, who the credible ones, it can really, you know, you can find yourself going down a rabbit hole, spending a lot of time on nothing. So, you know, that's really our job. We spend a lot of time, a great deal of effort, in fact, sifting through the noise to identify, you know, who the most prolific actors are right now. We, you know, we establish tracking against them so that when they say they have credentials um, and they're coming to market with those credentials, uh, and those accesses, we know that this is probably legitimate. Um, and so, you know, just keeping a, keep an eye on those actors and knowing which ones are scammers and which ones are not. And, you know, this requires a combination of technical automation. So establishing like technical automated coverage over this place, scraping forums and scraping instant message platforms where these actors are operating. Um, but then it also requires a touch of human research and analysis to go a little bit deeper, engaging with those threat actors, um, using sources to engage with them to understand and vet whether their accesses are, are legitimate or not. And then so both of those things, those approaches working in tandem are really necessary to cover kind of the breadth and the depth of credential theft so that, you know, clients and, you know, our clients were able to see those when they when they pop up. So one aspect of this story that really uh, struck me as amazing was just how brazen it was and how not only Bex, but no other than five other, I think, computer security vendors had basically identified campaigns as part of this sort of operation, even though they didn't take it as further as, as actually identifying the person. I mean, what do, you, what do you think is going on here when you've got an actor who's just um, totally oblivious to operational security? I don't know if I would call it brazen myself. More, more like probably arrogance and maybe a little bit of laziness. I know it. I know it probably seems crazy that the actor wouldn't be more careful to hide uh, his or her true identity. But, but honestly, if you're working in this space long enough, you kind of see it's it's really not uncommon to see these types of slip ups um, or people just being arrogant and feeling like as if though they are untouchable. And, you know, I think you get to a certain point just trying to, it's, this is kind of dangerous diving into the mind of a criminal, but if you kind of put yourself into, into their shoes, you get to a certain point where you've made enough money, you've operated for a certain period of time, unscathed, maybe in a, in a jurisdiction where the authorities are either, you know, not equipped to handle such cases, or maybe they're not aware of it, or maybe there's some corruption there. And, you know, you just get to a point where you don't care about, you know, whether people know who you are or not. It almost becomes, and, and then on the flip side, it almost becomes part of your persona and your reputation that you're flying this. I'm sure he'll get caught one of these days. Michael DeBolt, thank you so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. 